Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. So, yeah, exile theology or exile literature, what's that? Basically, it's the books of the Bible that were written when the people of Judah, strictly speaking, rather than Israel, the people of Judah um, were in captivity in Babylon. So it's the literature that was written during that time. Um, most of it by people who were in exile themselves. One book by a prophet who stayed behind in Jerusalem, wasn't taken into exile, but actually uh, commented most remarkably on what was happening in the exile. So that's what we're going to look at. And as I'm going to give my conclusion first, um, so you can see how we work up towards it, uh, although in the notes that comes right at the end. Uh, it's actually the literature that helps us living in a non-Christian influenced culture. Okay? And so the exile literature is in, speaks to us today very, very forcibly. Because it is up until that time, the people of Judah and the people of Israel, I'll explain the difference in a moment, the people of Judah had lived in a land where God's law was to govern the whole land. Then when they were taken into exile, they were in a position where other rules applied, other cultures dominated, and how were they to maintain faithfulness to God in that context? Now, that is the position which most of, the church, most of church history, the church has found itself. And in most of the world. And in today's world, we are now living in what's called a post-Christianised culture. It's not that we were previously living in a Christian culture in Britain but we were living in a culture influenced strongly by Christianity. And therefore, we weren't regarded as too odd and different. Whereas now we're living in a totally post-Christian environment, secular culture dominating, which is how the early church was, and they didn't do too badly. Often people say, oh, isn't it terrible that we're now living in a post-Christian age? Well... The early church lived in a non-Christian age and managed to prosper. Most of the world live in context where uh, they are living under a predominant culture that is totally contrary to the gospel, and they survive. And so, and the exile literature taught the people of Israel how to, to live in that context. So that's why it's important. Okay, apart from the fact it's important because it's in the Bible, uh, it's important for us now particularly. 
at the beginning, I just sketch, do a map which um, shows the main empires of that time. Um, and then I do a, just so you know what, what they're talking about, you've got the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, which were the Medes and Persians, Elam being the Persians. Um, and so uh, those were the three, and, and, and then the Egyptians. They were the four dominant empires at different times um, during the... Pre, during the Kings and Chronicles stories. And then I do a chart which sets out that history leading up to the exile. I'm not going to go through that, but I find it helpful because when you read, King, when you read Kings and Chronicles and, you know, you get, when so-and-so was king over this bit and somebody else in his 15th reign, year of his reign, somebody else came king of Judah... It's hard to all put together, isn't it? Or do you not find that? I mean, or do you not read Kings and Chronicles? Uh, but um, it's, it's, it's hard to put the whole story together. And so what I've done is show the different phases of that, of Kings and Chronicles, with the dominant enemy empire at each time, the significant events, and... Uh, and so on. So I hope you'll find that helpful, not for today particularly, but that's all that leads up to the exile. Remember, the ex there were two exiles. So the, the people of Israel, from the death of Solomon onwards, were actually two kingdoms. You were presumably aware that Israel, capital Samaria, in the more north, uh, Judah and parts of Benjamin in the south, who were uh, her capital, Jerusalem. So those were the two divisions of the people of God. They never united again after the death of Solomon. And, uh, and then, overall, they had more godly kings in Judah than in Israel, uh, they have quite a few ungodly ones as well, but they had more godly ones. And therefore, for the Israel, uh, they were taken into captivity by the Assyrians, the Assyrian Empire, which came before the Babylonian one. By the way, there are still Assyrians around today. Do you know that? Yeah, I went to, I visited an Assyrian school once in Armenia and uh, they still speak Aramaic which was the language Jesus spoke and uh, the, so I heard a eight-year-old girl as a, as a guest recited to me the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic as Jesus would have heard it. It didn't mean a lot to me uh, but it was just interesting to see that. So the Assyrians are still, there's still Assyrian people around. Uh, but they were, they were a big empire at this time. And they took the people of Israel into captivity and dispersed them all through the empire. Um, it's interesting. Tim Simmons and I were talking about this over breakfast. We do this sort of thing, you know. <laughs> that... Uh, 
what's happening in the Ukraine war at the moment is that people, people are being taken away into, uh, and what happened in Soviet times as well in that part of the world was to take people groups out from their own place and put them somewhere else. So people are being taken at the moment from places like Mariupol and taken into the middle of Russia somewhere. So they're no longer identified with their own people. And empires have often done that. Take, they sort of, the Assyrian strategy was to uh, disperse them in the empire so they no longer had an identity and therefore uh, were unable to revolt against the empire. That was, that was the theory. Okay, and that st st still happens. Um, a few years ago, I preached in a Crimean Tatar church where that's a Muslim convert for a people group in the, in the Crimea who Stalin, in one night, took the whole people group and dumped them in the middle of Kazakhstan. Now they're back now but so that's that's the sort of thing the Assyrians did and actually with the Assyrians the, largely the those tribes that were taken tribes of Israel that were taken into Assyria then effectively lost we often hear it talks about the you may have heard it the 10 lost tribes and that sort of thing well that's a reference to this whereas the Babylonians who came later when God allowed Judah to be taken into captivity because of their sin and idolatry, they took them into captivity but largely kept them together as an identified group. And then when the Medo-Persian Empire came after that and defeated the Babylonians, then one of their kings, Cyrus, had a different policy and he allowed all these different tribes from all over the empire to go back to their own land. Okay, so that's basically how it worked. Hope that's helpful as a background to the literature to uh, give you a, that sort of thumbnail sketch of what happened. Okay, so, we're now going to look at the literature itself and go through it book by book. And we'll first take the prophet Ezekiel. Okay. Ezekiel um, was a trainee priest living in Judah. So that's after the northern kingdom had been taken into exile. Ezekiel was a trainee priest living in the land of Judah at the mo one of the most tragic moments in their history. The previous king of Israel, a young boy named Josiah, had discovered a record of the law of God which had been lost. Um, they'd obviously lost the, lost the Bible, imagine. Okay. They'd lost the Pentateuch, the Torah. And uh, really... The people of God had only been kept together by traditional teaching and godly prophets because they'd lost it. Um, Josiah f found it, returned the people to God, and Ezekiel, interestingly, 
was born in a priestly family in the year Josiah found those scrolls, um, which is estimated to be 622 BC, for those of you who love dates. Okay. His parents named him, may God strengthen him, which is what Ezekiel means. And this was a time of great international events, as I've alluded to. The decline of one dominant power and the emergence of a new one. The Assyrian Empire was crumbling. Egypt and Babylon were attempting to become the dominant power. You know, the world history has consistently been some empire trying to become the dominant power in the world. Okay, that's human history. It's still happening, as we know only too well. In little Judah, though Josiah had tried to reform and removed idolatry from the high places, as they're called, but actually hadn't removed them from people's hearts. So when Josiah died in battle, Judah became a servant state, first to Egypt and then to Babylon, who defeated the Egyptians and became the world-only superpower for a time. And many of the people, especially the leaders, were taken into Babylon, including Ezekiel, age 25. And living in exile, so he was trained to be a priest, but living in exile, Ezekiel became a prophet and had visions of God and heard prophetically what was happening in Jerusalem. You know, Ezekiel was the first internet prophet, okay, because... Not be, uh, he, by God's revelation, he had visions of what was happening in Jerusalem a thousand miles away. Okay, and God, and he was able to then, through these visions, explain to the people living in exile, which was a, probably a good, there were a few people left in the, in the land, but most were living in exile, and Ezekiel prophesied to them what was happening in, um, <clears throat> back in Jerusalem. And so, then starting in chapter 40 of Ezekiel, by the way, the expression that's characteristic of Ezekiel is, the hand of the Lord came on Ezekiel. It's a wonderful, wonderful expression, actually. It says, God's Presence and power came forcibly upon him. And it comes several times through the book of Ezekiel that uh, the hand of the Lord came upon Ezekiel when he was uh, in, living in, in exile. And the hand of the Lord came upon him again in chapter 40. I'm, I'm just giving a summary of the book. Uh, and he was taken in vision to the land of Israel to a very high mountain on which was a city shaped like a cube. Um, and as Ezekiel looked around at his vision, he began to prophesy about God's restoration of his people to worship him correctly and restored to the land, which happened about 70 years later after the fall of Jerusalem. However, his language of restoration is full of symbolism, which is impossible to be literal, but which points forward to a vision of the future. And so 
Ezekiel was prophesying about this restoration of the people of God, but it's something that could never happen simply in restoring them nationally to the land because they were now to fill the earth. And the book of Revelation, which gives pictures of the glorious church, is drawn a lot from the book of Ezekiel. Okay. So... So, Ezekiel lived amongst the exiles, and he lived in the brick fields. Now, I come from Bedford. When I first moved to Bedford, it's not there now anymore, it was dominated by brick fields. And Bedford clay was good for making bricks after the Second World War to rebuild Britain. Um, And I often used to think, well, Ezekiel lived in the brick fields. And uh, so I could relate to him. And, uh, and so the houses were made with baked mud bricks. They were not in a prison camp, but they were allowed a lot of freedom. And he was obviously respected and consulted by the elders who still function in exile through the... Um, the priesthood did not. So the, the, the elders sort of ruled rather than the priests because they didn't have priests there in exile. And he was an extraordinary prophet, as I said, given to these visions. And he had to act out a number of his prophecies, making their impact very dramatic. So when Jerusalem was under siege, he had to build a little model of Jerusalem with the bricks that were being built there, lie on his side and lay siege to it and eat a very restricted diet in order to show the siege that the people of God were going through back in Jerusalem. So that's... uh, So he had to act them out for a while... He had to act being dumb, couldn't speak, could only show the people what was going on as a sign of God's silence over the fall of Jerusalem. He, uh, his wife died at precisely the time Jerusalem was destroyed but he was not allowed to mourn outwardly because he had to demonstrate that although Jerusalem was destroyed, don't mourn about it because this was God's judgment on their idolatry. People often want to be involved in prophetic ministry. I'm not sure they'd want to be involved in Ezekiel type. Okay. Then the vision of his... Ezekiel, at the beginning of his book, beginning of chapter 1, is probably the most epic and dramatic theophany, that means appearance of God, in the Bible. If you want to get a wonderful picture of God, read the early chapters of Ezekiel. Because it's just amazing. 
he saw a windstorm coming from the north and a huge cloud with brightness all around it. Fire was flashing from within the cloud and gleaming metal in the midst of it. From the middle, middle came four living creatures, human-like but with four wings. They have four faces, a human, a ruler of creation on God's behalf, a lion, the king of the wild animals, an ox, the strongest of the domestic animals, and an eagle, the most powerful of the birds. So it was talking, so first you got a view, when this windstorm came, you first got this view of the four aspects of living creatures in creation. Okay. Then, uh, their wings touched each other, forming an outward-looking square. Collectively, they resembled fire, with torches moving between them, a fire in the middle and lightning flashing out of them. And each living creature had a wheel within a wheel, interlocking at 90 degrees, which meant they could move in any direction quickly. By the way, we often use the expression in English language because a lot of our language, a lot of our metaphors come from the Bible in the English language, but we've lost the meaning of what they meant. So often people say, oh, it's wheels within wheels, you know, all sorts of machinations and all that sort of stuff. Doesn't mean that at all. The wheels within the wheels weren't that. The wheels within the wheels were this, because God eventually we come to, is on top of this, this vehicle with wheels within wheels. It means he can move anywhere, at any time, in any direction. Uh, that's what that's a vision of. Uh, the spirit of the living creatures in the wheels. Over the heads of the living creatures is a gigantic crystal expanse. The theologian Carson described it as like an upside down walk, which didn't exactly... <laughs> but on a massive, massive scale, this uh, crystal... And uh, the, when the wings moved, it sounded like the tumult of, the army, uh, of an army. When the voice above them is heard, they let down their wings and fall silent. Above the expanse is a throne like sapphire, surrounded by ri rainbows of living colour. Seated on the throne is one with a human experience, gleaming metal from the waist up and fire from the waist down. And then it describes it and says, such... No one's seen God at any time. So I love the way in which this moderate language is... Uh, he saw a vision of God. But it's not quite God. It says, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. Okay? It was... You can't really describe it, but it was appeared to be like, not Yahweh, but like the glory of Yahweh. Okay, and uh, you get this an amazing, amazing tra modern translation would be, it kind of looked like a tiny bit like something that was ever so slightly like this, but that doesn't get, even get close to describing God. And that's what... It maintains a 
the fact that we can appreciate God, but we can't fully understand God. We can't encompass God. People, even Christians, try to sometimes almost, well, God is like this, and we can make a God in our own image of the, God, of the real God, if you see what I mean. But no, we submit to a God that all we can see is a bit like this, a bit like that. Do you, do you understand? And yet, for Christians, that God in all his excellence is demonstrated in Jesus. He who has seen me has seen the Father. But that's later in the story. Do you understand? And so, uh, but, and this isn't in your notes, but I want to make sure, what was significant about this was where he saw God. They thought God was in Jerusalem, in the temple. The shock was, God's in Babylon. Because <laughs> he's in Babylon. They didn't expect to see God in Babylon. And that's one of the first lessons the exiles had to learn. That God is not in a place. God is everywhere in the most ungodly, unimaginable enemy. God's there. And that's what we need to appreciate as believers. In whatever culture we're living, however ungodly, however terrible, God's there. And this was a shock to the people of Israel. That's what Ezekiel had to teach them. Don't worry, God's in Babylon. And so... Uh, then, as we proceed through chapter 4 of Ezekiel, God speaks. Ezekiel first had to be in an attitude of ready service. He was raised up by the Spirit, strengthening him. Then he was given a not very attractive commission. He said, go and speak to the people, but they won't believe you. <laughs> but it's your job, you know. It's our job to obey Fruit is God's work. We can get very frustrated, can't we, as believers? Come on, we're doing all this hard stuff. We haven't seen much fruit yet. Uh, your job is to obey God. His job is to bring fruit. And we know, because of the parables Jesus taught us about seeds, that eventually it does bring fruit. So... Ezekiel was like that. And uh, Ezekiel said, no, no, no I'm not going to listen to you, but that's because I haven't listened to me. And you are almost illustrating that by their lack of listening to you. Nevertheless, we can be hurt by that, as Ezekiel was. Okay. Then, I just want to touch on... Uh, Where's a clock in this place? Isn't there one? 
Pardon? Okay. I have to put my phone up on here. I noticed all the clock. Come on, I mean, dangerous, really, to invite someone like me and not have a clock. I mean, I can... <laughs> okay. So, then there's two well-known chapters in Ezekiel, which I just want to touch on. One is Ezekiel 37 where he's taken out and sees a valley full of dry bones. You've heard of that one in Ezekiel, haven't you? Mm. Okay, that's what, you know, the preachers like to take out the sort of easy-to-explain bits of a book, especially Old Testament ones. So even if you haven't heard of the rest of Ezekiel, we've heard of Ezekiel chapter 37, which is the valley of dry bones. But it's a wonderful prophetic journey that Ezekiel goes through, and I tend to put it in, it's um, the prime meaning of this vision is the restoration of Israel to their land after it seemed hopeless, like dry bones. It's also even more fully fulfilled uh, in the new birth, a new people united in Christ, eventually all raised with their bodies when Christ returns. Okay, and uh, it's even an allusion back to the beginning of the creation of man. God breathed into them. And these dry bones, God breathed into them and they rose up to become a mighty army. As I say, that's a picture of when you became a believer, you said, well, yeah, I make a decision to follow Christ. Yeah, that's one view. The other aspect of it, God breathed into you. And you became alive. Yeah, some of you don't look very much like that, but you, you did. You, 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 you became alive spiritually. And then there'll be a great act of power on the last day when even okay, those who are living at the time will be changed, but those who have died, which is the majority of believers in Christ, God breathes when Jesus returns and we rise up a mighty army with glorified bodies to enjoy the new heaven and new earth. That's what Ezekiel 37 is about, each of those pictures. Because prophetic scriptures often have multiple applications into the future. I can't even get you excited about Ezekiel. You'd like to go and read Ezekiel sometime. And then there was different stages in this. Stage one was a sense of the leading of the Spirit of God. It said, the hand of the Lord came upon Ezekiel. His spirit led him. And so he knew God was at work. Stage two, there was a clear sense of the hopelessness of the situation. Ezekiel saw the bones as very dry and very disconnected. They weren't even skeletons. At least there would have been some hope with a skeleton, wouldn't there? You could see something. But these were disconnected bones. Stage three, we get the beginnings of faith. God says to Ezekiel, can these bones live? Ezekiel says, Lord, you know. You might say, it doesn't sound much faith. That's sometimes all the faith we've got, isn't it? <laughs> you know? Have you got faith, you know... 
The preachers say, you know, happy people of faith. Ezekiel's faith was, Lord, you know. And you must be doing something. Stage four. There was a prophetic speaking. Prophesy to the bones. That required growing faith as he spoke God's word into hopelessness. Commission on the church today is to speak God's word into hopelessness. And the result of this was partial fulfilment. There was bone came to bone. There was a rattling noise. But uh, no breath in them yet. Then stage five was prophetic praying. God says to Ezekiel, speak to the wind. Now the wind, as you probably have been taught, wind, breath or spirit are all the same word in Hebrew as they are in Greek. Speak to the wind, speak to the spirit, speak to the breath. Prophetic praying, come Holy Spirit. It's okay to pray that, you know. And praying the fulfilment of the promises of God. That's what prayer largely should be. God spoken. We take God's word and say, Lord, what you have spoken, bring about. I know often our prayer is worrying out loud. But <laughs> the... <laughs> Oh, no, we're all like it. <laughs> but <laughs> this prayer was speak to it, to speak the words of God. And stage six was the vast army. Amen. Okay. And the other well-known chapter of Ezekiel is chapter 47, which is describing the river of God. I love her. It's one of my favorite scriptures to preach on this one. Um, so you may have heard me do it, but uh, the river of God is, that's yeah, a wonderful picture. He, he goes and sees the altar set up again in this restored temple and then the, he, he I forgot, I usually bring my water bottle, left it in the car, that was stupid. Because... It says there was a trickle. What that is, is when a water bottle is just turned on its side. Have you know? That's what's happened. Just a trickle. That was what the word meant that's used in the Hebrew there. What happens when just little bits of water come out of a container. And so there was this little trickle. I said, what's that trickle? Now, as he watched, he saw it come out from the city, out from the temple. Now, Ezekiel, walk along following this trickle. And they went along for a particular distance. And he 
it became up to my ankles, a river. Then up to my knees, up to my waist. Then waters to s swim in. Then, now look Ezekiel, what do you see? And the Dead Sea was becoming full of life. And trees were growing beside this river. That's the story of the work of the Spirit, always. Starting as something small, then impacting the world. A trickle that started on the day of Pentecost is now a river that fills the earth. Even though it's in a post, it's in a non-Christian context almost everywhere, it's growing. In all sorts of so-called closed countries, the river which started as a trickle is now growing. I was talking to a friend of mine, part of our family of churches, just this week, and he was describing he's living in uh, one country which is a, next door to a totally closed country for the gospel. And pe leaders from that totally closed country where it's illegal to be a Christian are coming out regularly for training. We've got churches in that country. I'm not going to mention because I'm, I'm being recorded. And he said, I have never seen the abundance of the spirit among people, like amongst these people. Okay, it's a totally closed country. But that's what God does. It just, just starts with a trickle. Now, it's actually a, an ethnic group where internationally probably more people are coming to Christ than any other ethnic group at the moment. Many of them in exile, because they've fled as refugees, but many in their own land as well. Do you understand? That's how God works. And so what appears dead is actually full of life. That's what Ezekiel 47 teaches you. Can you live with that? But also, you see, the further we go in mission from the temple, the deeper the river. It's something that very hard for us as evangelical believers who've been Christians for many years to remember. We say we love the presence of God in the temple. Yes, we do. Of course we do. But the deep, further you go away from the temple into the toughest areas, the deeper the river gets there. Do you believe that? Okay. Sorry, I'm almost preaching to you. Forgive me. I'm supposed to be doing a, I'm supposed to be doing a Bible study. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Do you think the, the Apostle Paul was heavily influenced by Ezekiel? I mean, even the, the beginning where Ezekiel sees God. Yeah. Like yeah, Paul was totally steeped in Old Testament prophecy. In fact, often in, in, when you read the letters, you get little references which just seem like a reference to us. You know, 
but it's actually steeped in the whole story of Old Testament prophecy. And constantly, even when he starts the book of Romans, for example, he said, what was promised beforehand in the prophets I'm now telling you about? So he was massively impacted, as were the other apostles at that time, by prophetic literature from the Old Testament. And uh, in fact, in, in, Paul, in Peter's first preaching, you are heirs of the prophets. You know, all that's been said is now coming about. And so it's, that's why it's important to study that, because it brings alive what actually is now being fulfilled in our day. Very important. And so, uh, that's right. So, oh, I'm conscious of time, you need a break soon. Let's just quickly do Daniel. Well, I can't do quickly Daniel. <laughs> I've done Ezekiel. <laughs> okay, because Daniel, like Ezekiel, Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, were taken to Babylon in the first batch of exiles. However, unlike Ezekiel, Ezekiel was just left in the brickfields. Daniel as and the others were seen as bright young men from the court of Jerusalem. And Nebuchadnezzar was very clever. You know, these tyrants are often very clever. He said, if I get these brightest leader types and educate them, they'll become people that promote my program. Okay? So... That's what Nebuchadnezzar did. These young, bright, potential leaders taken into the Babylonian university to study. And so, as I said, Nebuchadnezzar's strategy is take the brightest leaders, change their names, so they no longer have Hebrew identity. Train them in the best of Babylonian culture and education and promote them into government. Hopefully, we'll then reduce their effectiveness as leaders of the people of God. But that's not what happened. So the purpose of the book of Daniel is to prepare God's people, the Jews of that day, as I've said in my introduction, to live under predominantly pagan, or as we would say today, secular governments, which are antagonistic to their faith. Okay, I said that at the beginning. And that's exactly the position for the Christian church in most of the world for most of history. And so, uh, and then, and, 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 they, and they did, they went through the, they, went, they, they became better at all the arts of, and culture of the Babylonians than most Babylonians. That's interesting, isn't it? They didn't say, no, we're not going to go to your university, kill us. So, yeah, we'll study. We'll work hard. I'll come back to that in application in a moment. And so then in Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to unite his empire, consisting of many races, languages and faith. Perhaps a bit insecure because of the dream he'd had, which Daniel had interpreted. So I haven't got time to go into that. I'd love to. 
I love to teach through Book of Daniel like I love to teach through Ezekiel. There ain't time. So he decided to build a massive gold statue, 90 feet tall and a foot wide. So it must have been strange construction, really. But you can see them all over the world. These constructions built to celebrate great rulers. Rulers who could be a bit insecure, unite, try and unite people around these statues and images. Okay, it happens all the time. And ordered all those who worked for the government from the different ethnic groups, when they heard the orchestra play, they were to bow down and worship this massive statue. Anyone who didn't would be thrown into a furnace, probably used for firing bricks. Remember, go back to that story. And they were very common in the ancient world to glorify some monarch. And emperors of the ancient world often expected to people unite round an image of them because the state takes precedence over any faith. And that, again, is what happens in secular governments today. The state is to take precedence over any faith. And don't think we're exempt from that. There was a story of an old lady in Russia in the Soviet Union times. And she went into an Orthodox church and was seen kissing the feet of an icon of Jesus. I've been into these Russian Orthodox churches and you see lots of these pictures and so on. And people bowing down before them. And a communist official saw her and said, this was in Stalin's time, said, Babushka, old lady, Grandmother, literally, but old lady. Babushka, would you kiss the feet of Comrade Stalin? She replied, yes, if you crucify him first. <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> but there was this wanting to do that. And uh, amazing reply from Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. The God we serve is able to save us from the furnace. But even if he doesn't, we will not worship your gods or your, false, or your statue. Wow. And that's faith. Faith that both trusts God but leaves it in the hands of God. We'll do right and God can save us. But even if he doesn't, we'll still do right. And then to their amazement, Nebuchadnezzar started to see four men walking around unhurt. The fourth looked like a god, and so he called them out of the fire, and there was no sign of burning on them. And Nebuchadnezzar even then worshipped God, whether he was really a believer or just acknowledged the power of that miracle. We don't know. Um, but he said, no, but no one from any ethnic group must speak against the god of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and promoted them again. A great story. Um, and a summary, Golden Gate summary of this. As a whole, the story relates how the men are put on the spot, denounced, interrogated, executed, delivered and promoted. The arrogant king is humble, humbled. The faithful Jews are exalted. So what do we learn from Daniel? 
And then before coming on to the apocalyptic bit of Daniel, which is the second half of Daniel, which is the bit the preachers usually ignore, they like the first half. Uh, a, bit easier. <laughs> a bit easier, yeah. We did a series in Daniel in the home church, and I'm not leading that church now, but the people who are leading it said, okay, we'll go through this, we'll teach the first part of Daniel on Sunday mornings, and then David Devonish will explain the second half of Daniel on Sunday <laughs> evenings for the special <laughs> seminars. So, okay. But the, and so the, um, what do we learn from Daniel? Firstly, learn where you can com- compromise and where you mustn't. I'm sorry, believers, we have to live with compromise. That's the lesson for living in, in when you were living in your home, when they were living, the Jews were living in their own country with Jewish law, they didn't have to compromise or break, to break the law. Do you know what I mean? Living in Babylon, they had to. So, and Christians need to learn this. It's very hard. What do we compromise on and what don't we? When we come to Esther, a little bit later, we'll see that even more. But, so they still learnt all the magic arts of occultism in Babylon. They still went to Babylon University. Still took their degree. Learnt all sorts of things that would be contrary to their faith, but they did it. The only thing they wouldn't compromise on, well, two things, but they're related. One is what kept them separate as a people of God, which for them was food laws. We won't eat your food. For us, isn't food, because why were there food laws in the Old Testament? Why couldn't you eat pig and why couldn't you eat mussels? It was fun. Unclean. Yes, it was unclean, but what did that, it was ritually unclean. Okay? And they, they needed to have things which kept Israel as a separate nation. Why? Because the Messiah was coming from Israel. That was their identity. For us, and Peter had to be taught this in his vision from heaven, God now wants every nation to come to him, whatever they eat. And so what I've learned in world mission as I travel around the world is you can't preach the gospel to people if you won't eat their food. (laughs) Okay? So I've enjoyed all sorts of things. Okay? (laughs) And I love it when you eat their food. And so that's why those, so now it's not a separate people ethnically. It's a separate people inwardly in our hearts, but who know what to compromise on outwardly. Do you understand? And so this is a huge thing for us. So they refused to compromise on the food laws and they refused to give glory to government that can only be given to God. Governments often demand, particularly in totalitarian regimes, particularly demand worship effectively as well as obedience. They refuse that, but 
And we, we have to learn that as well. So, they, how did they react under that great pressure? Pressure from authority. Many believers face statist religion. There's an evil spirit at work in this. And Christians in most of the world suffer under it, increasingly even in the UK. Sometimes believers can be deceived and support a developing tyranny. Sadly, that happened in Germany, where evangelicals didn't stand against Hitler, other than a few like Bonhoeffer. Because they compromised on the wrong things. Apartheid South Africa, when Christians, the white ones, identified with apartheid. Taught it in the Bible. Be careful. Because I have to often minister to two countries that are fighting each other. I have to reconcile Christians, leaders, who would naturally support their own government in a war, because that's what most Christians do. Whether the war is just or not. So Christians would have cooperated with colonial wars, for example. Do you understand? Compromise on the wrong things. Pressure conformity. Everybody else was bowing down. All the languages would unite. Yeah? And that's God's plan for all the languages to unite. That's what the sign of Pentecost was about. But this was all the languages uniting on a wrong basis. Pressure for conformity. Everybody else does it. Tough. With the... A lot of the stuff that's come into our own country in the last 20 years or so, and our young people in schools and teachers in schools, have to learn, how do we comp- which do we compromise on? Do we teach things we don't believe in? Well, you may have to. But have a church that lives clear of those things. It's very hard. So I've given examples when Christians didn't do that. They compromised on the wrong things. But there's other things we say, this is in the word of God. We can't push that on the prevailing culture because we're in an ungodly culture. We can live differently, but then how do you withstand the pressures? It's a massive, but it's the issue. It's the issue that Daniel faced. Pressure from intimidation. Throw you into a fiery furnace. King got very angry. Okay. With that thought, let's have coffee. Uh, I'm going to take a break before I come on to apocalyptic literature. And then I've got to, get, I've got to, start, rate, I've got to start accelerating a bit in this next session. But, so, can I limit you to 10 minutes coffee break? Can you do that? Are we all back now? Okay. I was 
teaching at a seminar in Russia once and um, we had a coffee break and it took, it's always a massive, massive job to get everyone back. There were about 500 people there, I think. And I, I said, because I don't like people to miss anything, they might miss that important step in what I'm teaching. And as a teacher, I can't stand that. And so I said, I'll just wait a few minutes for the last people to come in, because there's about a third missing. And then people started going out. <laughs> so I turned to my interpreter and said, where are they all going? He said, we haven't started, no point in being here. <laughs> <laughs> so I learned, yeah, just start. Okay. So Daniel, an introduction to apocalyptic literature. Looking around here, many of you will remember Peanuts cartoons. So let's start with, to help us with apocalyptic literature, let's start with Peanuts expounding a nursery rhyme. Would that do? It's very helpful. The way I see it, the cow jumping over the moon indicates a huge rise in farm prices. The part about the dish running away with the spoon. By the way, if you're not from Britain, it's a strange nursery rhyme, which, forgive me, I'm not going to recite, but you teach your kids about dishes running away with spoons and cows jumping over moons, okay? So forgive me for those from another culture. That I, and the cat on the fiddle. Okay, so forgive me, those from other cultures, I would never use this in a cross-cultural context, so forgive me. And the part, part about the dish running away with the spoon must refer to the consumer. Do you agree with me, Charlie Brown? I can't say. I don't pretend to be a student of prophetic literature. Okay, <laughs> and unfortunately... Within the Evangelical Christian Church, there's lots of interpretations of apocalyptic which are a bit like that. This represents that. And then when this doesn't happen, they don't say, sorry, we've got our whole method of interpretation wrong. They then say, now they sell lots of books teaching what it does mean next even though what they first said didn't come true. Okay? Because people, you know, when they read the book of Revelation or apocalyptic literature in Daniel, because the second half of Daniel is that. It's very different from the first half. first half is history, which we can understand easily, and the second half is apocalyptic, which I'll explain in a moment, full of symbolism. And the book of Revelation is like that. And so people work out, ah, that must refer to this particular war. This is the fulfilment. Jesus said the opposite. You will hear of wars and rumours of war and famines and earthquakes and pestilence like COVID. And then he said, but the end is not yet. In other words, that is 
world history through which the gospel must spread. It is not the signs of the end. You understand? He says, the gospel of the kingdom must be preached to every ethnic group then. The end will come. It's more related to the progress of the gospel than it is to outward signs. All right, so having put my cards on the table there, because the Bible has various forms of literature which need to be understood in their own way. Narrative, a story, that's most of it. Laws, and you have to decide which laws were for a particular time, which laws are for all time. Poetry, proverbs. Proverbs are wise saying which you have to know how to apply in particular circumstances. So in the book of Proverbs, within two or three verses of each other, it says, answer a fool according to its its folly. A few verses later, or the other way around, I can't remember. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. (laughs) I said, the Bible contradicts himself. No, no. This is is wisdom literature. It's saying these are general principles that you... So things like bribery, if you read the book of Proverbs... Half the references are of making it bad, half the references are okay. What? Because you need wisdom for certain situations. I've had to help people in different parts of the world about that. Because sometimes you have to do it because it's extortion rather than bribery. Yeah? You, you, know, you can't get anything done. One proverb says, a man's gift makes way for him and ushers him into the presence of the great. Now, charismatics interpret that super spiritually, but it's not. It's a fact. As I know in many parts of the world, send the gift first, and they'll see you. Do you understand? Yeah. And so you need to learn the different sorts of literature. Sorry, I'm not here talking. I presume you've got a session on wisdom literature where you'll be taught all that. And if you haven't, be corrected by what they do teach you instead of me. Okay. Parables, which are stories with a meaning. And what is called apocalyptic. Apocalyptic uses cosmic or otherworldly language to describe this worldly realities or spiritual significance. E.g. the sun darkened, the stars falling, refer not to the collapse of the space-time world, but to the startling and cosmically significant events such as the fall of great empires. You understand? That's apocalyptic literature. Don't read apocalyptic literature as if it's narrative. Don't read poetry as if it's narrative. So, the three scriptures most associated with apocalyptic are Daniel, the last six chapters, Revelation, and the temple discourses of Jesus. You know, about the end times. Okay. By the way, even the expression of the last days in the Bible refer to Pentecost, to the second coming. That's all the last days. So are we living in the last days? Yes. Does that mean Jesus is coming very quickly? We pray so. 
but we don't. We understand that Jesus, he says, he doesn't delay, it's just that he wants all people to be saved. You understand it's a, it's the gospel mandate in both, in both those cases. So we live every day as if Jesus could come back and we work hard as if we've got, as we have, huge tasks to reach the world of the gospel. Okay. So we live... So Daniel chapter 7. This is obviously a very important scripture because it was frequently quoted by Jesus himself. Jesus quotes the apocalyptic literature in Daniel. In particular, verse 13, as the vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. Okay, Jesus quotes that a lot. And uh, actually, it refers to his being received back in glory after his resurrection more than to his second coming, although he does come with the clouds. But it's actually going into the presence of God. Although, as he says, you'll see him coming in glory, because clouds represent glory, as you saw him going into heaven with glory. But the first section describes various foul-looking beasts coming from the sea. In the Hebrew mind, the sea isn't a lovely place where you you dip your toes. The sea is chaos and disorder. Hence, in Revelation, there'll be no more sea. The point is not to deny you seaside pleasures. The point is there's no more of the chaos and disorder that the sea represented to the Hebrew mind. So the the beasts become increasingly more grotesque and ferocious. Like verse 7, Then in my vision that night I saw a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful and very strong. It devoured and crushed its victims with huge iron teeth and trampled their remains beneath its feet. It was different from any of the other beasts and it had ten horns. Which those who read it as narrative love. Ten horns. That means it's ten nations. So when has there ever been an association of ten nations? No, no. It means it's grotesque and awful and even an empire that's even worse than some of them that have gone before. And it's described, this is what misused human government is like. This is what imperial ambitions are like. Wish we'd taught that sometimes in our history. This is, this is what is happening in certain part of the world right now. Okay. But it's the characteristic of the misuse of power in human government. And whenever I'm teaching on spiritual authority, I start with this scripture. I said, because of abuse of authority is this. That's how the world is. That's what Jesus said. You're not to be like the nations in the way you exercise authority. So 
the authority of the servant king is totally unlike that. Therefore, authority in the church must always never be overbearing, must always serve the people. But I always start when speaking of spiritual authority with the misuse of authority that apocalyptic literature describes. So, so these beasts represent the demonic and cruel exploitation of human government. At the time, they probably represented the four empires, like Nebuchadnezzar's vision in chapter 2 of Daniel, the Babylonian Empire, the Medea-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. However, it's vague enough to apply symbolically to all abuse of authority in human government. And Jesus called himself the Son of Man and used the scripture to Caiaphas as his trial. I am, said Jesus, and you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. And of course the high priest understood what he meant by that. Tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He said, you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death, Mark 14, 62-64. As I say, this did not refer to Jesus' second coming, but to his exaltation by the Father and the vindication of all that Jesus had prophesied. The ironic thing was that in cleansing the temple and being resisted by the Jewish authorities meant that the Christ-rejecting Jewish establishment became part of the evil powers and in that the Messiah was vindicated in the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. So when Paul is writing later and talks about principalities and powers, he puts the Jewish law as part of the principalities and powers. Conformity to legalism part of the principalities and powers because when they when they rejected Christ you see that became a power so what good can become an evil power so misuse of authority in churches which sometimes happens sadly we become, they become identified with evil power. So, so the second part of Daniel, then you get all sorts of other things. You get the fact that behind the empires are demonic forces. The prince of Persia, the prince of Greece it talks about. What's that? That behind the, the, the human governments, particularly when they're expanding empires to dominate other people, is demonic power, like the Prince of Persia, the Prince of Greece, and that's what principalities and powers are in the New Testament. And that's what we battle against, it says, not flesh and blood. Okay, so Daniel helps you on that. Uh, so it becomes clear that when the years of exile cease, the second part of Daniel is when the years of exile cease and Israel's back in the glorious land, they will have to plod through a long stretch of this troubled stuff we call history. 
Getting back to the land, which was 70 years after they were in exile, did not mean that the kingdom of God will immediately appear. Because that's what Daniel teaches. Yeah. Because he's praying about the 70 years that Jeremiah had said. Sorry, I haven't done Jeremiah yet, but he's praying about those 70 years. Then God says to him, no, 70 times seven. So even when they get in the land, they're not free. Because other than a few years between then and AD 70, when the, the temple was destroyed and everything, Israel was always dominated by foreign powers. When Jesus came, it was the Roman Empire. And that's what Daniel's teaching. So... Uh, John Walton put this well. In the meantime, the Israelites were to live out their faith in a Gentile world under circumstances that would make it more and more difficult to do so. They had to count on the sovereignty of God to sustain them generation by generation, crisis by crisis. They also had to trust the power of God to control the flow of world empires as they rise and fall. God's agenda is never in jeopardy. Nevertheless, they were to be prepared for the long term. Even Christ's people today are not exactly thrilled over that word. We tend to prefer a quick-fix approach rather than a long view of discipleship. Not only Daniel 8, but Jesus himself has taught us to believe. He said, we will hear of wars and rumours of wars, that nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, but these are not the signs of the end. They are simply the way things will be in the present age. And in and through... And it is in and through these bumps and jumps and lumps of history that we are to prove faithful. Get it? Yeah. You understand why Daniel and apocalyptic literature speaks to us today? Mm. And the exile literature? Right. I must rush, otherwise I'll never get to culture. Whew. Help me, Lord. Right, Jeremiah. So I'm going I'm to accelerate. Can you cope with acceleration? Okay, hold on to your seats. Put your seatbelt on. Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible, except for the Psalms. Jeremiah stood out among the citizens of that uncertain world as a man of vision, where most people were only where most people saw only turmoil and uncertainty. He perceived the hand of God at work in the crises of his world and delivered a message that addressed both his own age and subsequent generations. Jeremiah is a very important book. I remember when I did a study of Jeremiah a few years ago, I thought, wow, it's important for our day. Jere and Jeremiah learned a huge lesson which helped his theology. The externals of the law cannot change the heart. As soon as Josiah died, many of the evil practices came back. People hadn't changed. Jeremiah understood it's only by a new heart, a new spirit within you, a new covenant. And God spoke to Jeremiah, Babylon will take some into exile and destroy others. The best thing to do is surrender. A completely unpopular message to a nationalistic people. They called him a traitor. Jeremiah said, surrender, then you won't be destroyed. You've sinned against God, he won't rescue you. All the other prophets said the opposite. The false prophets, that is. They said, God is with us. We're the temple of the Lord. It can't be destroyed. 
Jeremiah said, no, it can't be destroyed because of how you've been. Many were taken into captivity. And Jeremiah, though he wasn't taken into captivity, he wrote to them to help them. And what Jeremiah prophesied happened, but he was thrown into his prison, his writings burned. But hope is in his message too. 70 years and they would return. Eventually, aged about 70, Jeremiah was taken off by some people fleeing the land into Egypt. There he eventually died. Jeremiah was countercultural and unpopular, suffered most of his life for his message. He had internal agonies of soul when saying it, can't I say something else? Though he was right and faithful to the God, he ended his life as a 70-plus-year-old 70, 70 exile but prophesied with amazing insights that are still coming true today. Helps us redefine success. Success in church life often needs redefinition. Because we think, well, someone who's planted 5,000 churches must be pretty successful. Someone who builds a big church must be successful. Jeremiah was successful. But no one listened to him. And he was taken into exile. But he speaks, still speaks today. So, Jeremiah and Jesus. Many years later, Matthew records, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah. Oh, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Why did people say about Jesus, you are like Jeremiah? You can understand Elijah, can't you? You know, Elijah was the big, bold preacher who saw the prophets of Baal defeated. So you can understand them saying, he's like Elijah. Is he like Elijah? You can understand them saying, he's John the Baptist come back. But Jeremiah? Why not pick Isaiah or one of my other more positive prophets? Why is Jesus like Jeremiah? But Jesus was like Jeremiah in many ways, except he surpassed and fulfilled Jeremiah's message. Jesus similarly stood against prevailing opinion on the same issues. Israel was faced with an occupying power and expected the Messiah to overthrow it. Jesus said, love your enemies. Jesus said, if one of these horrible occupying soldiers say, carry this pack for me one mile, which they're entitled to under Roman law, he, he said, we'll carry it two miles. He associated with people like tax collectors who were associated with the occupying power. The temple, Jeremiah said, the temple's going to fall, don't trust it. Jesus is similar. So the temple's going to fall, don't trust it. In fact, the temple was obsolete as soon as Jesus came. Well, as soon as he started his ministry. Why? Because the temple was now embodied in a person. The temple was where you met God. Jesus, the temple, came onto the streets. 
That's where you met God. Okay, the temple's going to fall. And Matthew's gospel is particularly powerful in this because all the first miracles were done amongst people who weren't allowed to the temple. Lepers. Gentiles. See? The lame. Jeremiah prophesied a new covenant. He knew because of the wickedness of the heart, external law couldn't change them, only a new heart given by the grace of God and his initiative. Jesus inaugurated that new covenant. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He was a man of sorrows like Jeremiah. Unlike Jeremiah, though, Jesus forgave his enemies. Jeremiah cursed them. <laughs> Jeremiah also brought a countercultural message that nobody else was saying. And this scripture, Jeremiah 29, is very important for Christians today. People were taken into exile. Jeremiah said, go and enjoy your exile. Huh? This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Wow! They're in exile in Babylon. Ezekiel showed God was in Babylon. Jeremiah says, go and enjoy Babylon. Hello? Christians are sent into the world, not taken from the world. I don't pray that you take them out of the world, said Jesus. I'm sending them in like you sent me, Father. So you pray for the prosperity of Manchester or Liverpool or wherever you come from. You understand? Pray for it. Bless it. Don't just moan about it. In a secular society. Wow. That's our attitude. We will not compromise on things that concern our identity just like Daniel didn't. We will teach our young people to live differently from the world and not compromise, but we will bless the world in doing that. We won't try and pull them out into some sort of Christianised ghetto. Get it? That's the message of Jeremiah. The exile literature. Jeremiah's radical message was a new way of working in the kingdom. Up till then, Israel... Oh, so I've said all this. Now it's all changed. They're not in one nation now. They're scattered among the nations, having to live out the kingdom in a culturally hostile environment. What are they to do? Live their lives, engage with the culture, but be different and pray for and bless that nation. Tim Keller put it this way. We must not form a subculture in which we externally dress and talk differently, avoid certain gross behaviours, but internally we have the same values as the surrounding culture. E.g. believers may not smoke or drink too much 
or have sex outside of marriage, yet in their core beings, they are maybe as materialistic and individualistic and status or image conscious as the society around. You understand that? I read it fast. It's important. It's what Jeremiah was saying, what Ezekiel was saying, what Daniel was saying, what Tim Keller says. Yeah. I, I, brought up, I was brought up in a group of Christians, exclusive Plymouth Brethren, that were completely separate from the world. We didn't have television, didn't have radio, didn't, didn't go to films, didn't... We were totally different. But we were as worldly as anybody else. Because inside, we were materialistic, we were ambitious. You understand? The prosperity gospel, so-called, health and wealth, is basically Western individualistic capitalist culture with a gospel veneer. Isn't changing the heart. Sorry, I don't usually say strong things, but, you know. Colonialist Christians that identified with the colonial powers when they were serving those that they were colonising were compromising inwardly. They were worldly. Now, they also did good, because we are a mixture. We preach the gospel. As Archbishop Tutu said, you know, when the Europeans first came, we had the land, they had the gospel. We all closed our eyes to pray, and when we opened our eyes again, they had the land, but we had the gospel. Okay? <laughs> so he goes on to say, Tim Keller, this is the reverse of a subcontrol cult culture where to be externally quite like the surrounding culture, positive towards and conversant with it, without jargon and other Christian trappings, yet in worldview, values and lifestyle demonstrate chastity, simplicity, humility and self-sacrifice. He goes on to say, Jeremiah was a proponent of counterculture in Jeremiah 29. Get it? Are you inwardly different or do you dress in old-fashioned ways? You know, where I was brought up, you were allowed to follow fashion as long as you're 20 years behind. <laughs> Okay, Esther. Oh, dear Lord, help me. Esther. Right. Got culture to do yet. Esther's a brilliant story. And gives the reasons for the Jewish feast of Purim, which is still celebrated by the Jewish people all over the world today. It's also a fun story though recording serious and dangerous events. It's full of surprises. It's full of drama. It's full of jokes. We don't get them because we aren't in that culture, but I'll explain where the jokes are. It's one of the funniest books of the Bible, even though it describes very serious events, which was the almost extermination of the Jewish people. Whew. Which God wouldn't allow to happen because the Messiah was to come. 
And he's still preserving them, I believe, you know. A moment in history of the great Persian Empire, yet full of humorous exaggeration. Feasts that last for six months. Do you think they really had a feast? That, oh, you say, you, you undermine the Bible. No, no, no. It's fun. It's a joke. This is what these people were like. They used to eat and drink and have a feast for six months. Okay? It's exaggeration. It's fun. Gallows as high as a six-story building. Even the names of the courtiers. He chose names for the courtiers, which weren't real names. If you read them, they're just jokey names. Even in their culture, they're jokey to us, because we haven't a clue what they're saying. But they were jokey then as well. It's demonstrating the achieving of God's purpose, the rescue of the Jews, but also pokes fun at the foolishness of proud rulers and their stupidity in making decisions. For those who are a bit older, the equivalent today would be the Blackadder view of history. <laughs> okay. For younger people, horrible histories. Okay. It's theology told with irony, satire and humour. Humour takes the edge off horror and makes it possible to read a story we would not otherwise be able to read. It's talking to guys in our team in Ukraine just the other day. He said, all our team meetings are full of jokes. Why? Now they're doing serious stuff. They're rescuing thousands of people. But you understand? That's what the book of Esther is. Now, at the time of the Book of Extra, King Xerxes was ruler over the Persian Empire. He's a great figure in world history. I remember when I was at school learning about Xerxes. Okay, that's a long time ago, so maybe they don't teach you Xerxes now. But the Bible calls him Ahasuerus. You say, well, was that his other name? Was that... No, it's a joke. The English equivalent would be King Headache. Okay, King Headache. He throws a great banquet for six months for his nobles and then a seven-day feast for all the inhabitants of Susa, the capital city. There was a clear rule to this feast. There must be no restrictions on how much you eat or drink. Men only were together, as was the culture. Still is in parts of the world. I've been to places where... You're, all, you're doing a worship service together and then when we go home for food, all the men sit in one room and the women wait on us. I'm not advocating that, by the way. I'm just saying <laughs> that's, what that's, that's, always, that's what it is in some places. Um, so, and then, because they were all drunk, I mean, this is awful. That's why it has to be done in joke. Queen Vashti was having a separate party for the women, and after the seven days, when all the men were drunk, Xerxes called his queen to parade her beauty, which is putting things delicately. In other words, for his queen to undress and display her beauty to all the men. 
she refuses. He was the absolute ruler. So he made a new law, Vashti would no longer be queen and men should rule over their families. Well, that was in response to one of the nobles who said when she, see, sorry, Vashti refused, I've missed a bit out. She dishonoured and shamed King Headache. In honour-based societies, shaming constitute, constitutes a grave offence which regularly produces the most extreme response. We'll look at that when it comes to culture in a moment. Shame-based cultures are like that. She shamed her husband. It was all right for him to shame her. One of the nobles said, if this is allowed and becomes known throughout the empire, which was from India to Sudan, this empire, pretty big. Can you work that out? India to Sudan. No woman will respect their husbands. Again, exaggerated humour. So make a new law that Vashti will no longer be queen and men should rule over their families and translate that into every language in the empire. So they search for a new queen. They call together all the beautiful virgins you can find for the king's harem. I mean, what? Imagine it. It's, it's awful. Talk about abuse. One of these may please the king and so become queen. Pleasing the king was not by the power of their intellect, but by spending one night with him. Each of these virgins had to spend one night and the one who pleasured him the most, will be chosen as queen. It's disgusting. That's why it has to be told in, the, in this humorous way. Do you understand? The only qualifications to be queen were beauty and sexual performance. One of the beautiful virgins was a Jewish orphan girl called Esther, who lived under the care of her elder cousin, Mordecai. She's taken into the harem and prepared for a year to go to the king. Prepared for a year before she went into the king with the beauty treatments. Morally dubious, to say the least. Raises lots of questions. Why didn't Mordecai hide her? It's why centuries ago, some Jewish and Christian commentators didn't really think this should book, book should be in the Bible. In a totalitarian government, people have to submit to awful things. Terrible abuse. For, for most of these virgins, after a night with the king, most of them would stay in the harem and not called again for the rest of their life. Esther was given favour by the eunuch in charge of the harem. They used the eunuch in charge of the harem because he could be trusted not to have sex with the women. And then so pleased the king in one night that she was given favour by him and made queen. Nobody knew that she was Jewish. She hadn't even told people that she was the people of God. This is... She'd kept that a secret on Mordecai's instructions. Her cousin Mordecai was one of the close advisors in the court. It's like, you know, Christian being... in the cabinet of an authoritarian government. And he'd heard of a plot to kill Xerxes and told Esther who told the king, so the coup was foiled. 
Normally, Mordecai would have been honoured immediately, but somehow this was forgotten. Five years after Esther was made queen, another character, Haman, who was an Agagite, a traditional enemy of the Jews, Malachites they're often called, was honoured by the king, so everyone had to bow down to him. Mordecai refused, and so furious, Haman influenced the king. Again, the king is seen as simply manipulated by those around him, not thinking for himself at all, to pass the law which cannot be changed on a date chosen by poor, that's Lot, that all Jews will be destroyed, because one Jew wouldn't buy down to Haman. Wow. And so they get this story going on. I horrified, Mordecai put on sackcloth, and sent word to Esther to ask the king to rescind the law. Esther said, he hadn't called me for a month, and nobody could just walk into the presence of the king. Key statement from Mordecai. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. That's wonderful, isn't it? He believed God. But you and your father's family will perish, and who knows, you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And so... You know, the story goes on. I haven't got time to go into detail. It's a wonderful story. The narrative is brilliant. And so Esther arranges a feast and brings, said, I want to invite. She, well, she goes into the king's presence, which you're not allowed to do until you're called. But if he puts his scepter towards you, you can go in. So she, she would have lost her life if he hadn't put a scepter towards her. He put the scepter towards her. She went in and said, what do you want? Now, understand this. A Westerner would say, I want you not to destroy the Jews. An Easterner goes round and round in circles before getting to it. That's a lesson in... I'm anticipating my next lecture. It's a difference in cultures. We sometimes come directly. Most cultures I'm involved with go indirectly. Can any of you identify with that? You talk, tell lots of stories, you get round to the point eventually. That's what happened. So she didn't say, please rescue the Jews. She said, please go have a banquet. All right, invite Haman. So they did. At the end, because you never talk business during the banquet. That's another thing I had to learn from the East. Once I was at a conference... <laughs> We gathered lots of people from East and West, and I was having to meet different ones for lunch to find out how they were going, because it was the only time to do it. And I met with this guy, an Eastern guy, for lunch to ask him how he was going in his situation. And uh, he said to me, I said, of course, I hadn't got much time, because I was a busy Westerner and lots of meetings. So I said to him, as he was eating his food, so how's such and such going, you know? He looked at me and said, I'm eating. <laughs> okay, I understood. One of my many cultural faux pas. So, I learned. No, don't ask him where things are going. You talk about virtually nothing over lunch. Well, it was like that. So, at the end of the lunch, what do you want, Esther? I want to have another meal tomorrow. Oh, all right. Haman was feeling pretty good about this. The queen wants me in this position of honour. In the night, so if he'd done it straight away, there'd have been a problem. In the night, 
the king couldn't sleep. So he said, bring me the history books so I can read about all the wonderful things I've done. I don't know what you do when you can't sleep, but that's what, I, that's what he did. <laughs> so he read it. And read about this guy, Mordecai, who saved his life. I thought, he never gave him an honour. I must remember that in the morning. <laughs> so he decided to honour Mordecai. So he said to Haman, Hey, what shall we done for the person the king wants to honour? Haman thought, that's me. Or oh, clothe him in a royal robe. Let him go in your chariot. Okay, so don't do that to Mordecai. What? You know? Then Haman thought, something's up now. Went to this banquet with Esther. This time, when they got to business afterwards, Esther said, please, this terrible command has been given by Haman to destroy all the Jews. I'm a Jew. Wow. And so the gallows that Haman had prepared, which were six stories high, so it's fun. <laughs> they hung Haman on it instead. Well, that's a great story, isn't it? Still, Purim is a <laughs> celebration with the Jewish people of great fun. And every time they read the story, and they mention, every time they mention Haman's name, everyone goes, Boo! <laughs> it's... Okay. What do we learn? Esther and Mordecai were totally immersed in Persian culture. They were not back in Jerusalem amongst the people of God. You, f you have to do things we'd rather not do or say or refrain from saying certain things. You can't always say it as it is. We may feel obliged to make compromises in pagan culture, not as extreme the ones as Esther, spending night with a pagan king and becoming his queen, but we have to think about that today. And they took advantage of favour. This is how the gospel often proceeds in total pagan culture. Something happens which causes someone to be favoured. It does. God's behind it all. God's working his purposes out. Amen? Oh, yeah, come on. Look out for this. Take advantage of it. I know of many who've seen wonderful things happen simply because they waited, served faithfully and waited till rulers or the boss or someone gave them favour. They seized the moment of destiny at personal risk. As I say, Esther hadn't even said the equivalent of saying, I'm a Christian. But she was a, used by God for the most amazing deliverance of the people of God, which resulted in the Messiah still being able to come from Israel. You understand? Okay. <laughs> for further thought and discussion... When did the captivity end? 70 years after going to Babylon? Or a lot later, the significance of the 490 years? Think about it. What does the captivity literature teach us for living in post-Christian UK? All right. Think about that. <laughs> <laughs>